You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. Uh, We've got plenty of them, and we'd love to pass them out. It'll be much more enjoyable if you can go through the scriptures with us. And if you're new with us, just to give you a little bit of understanding of where we are, we're in a series called The Unexpected Messiah. The Unexpected Messiah. And we've been going verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew. And we are literally at the tail end of Matthew in Matthew chapter 27. So if you have your Bibles, whether it be on your phone or uh, in your lap, please open them to Matthew chapter 27. We'll begin kind of a recap in verse 45 and then work our way through verse 56 today. Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 through 56. And to give you a recap of where we are, Jesus, the Son of God, who left heaven, came to earth, became a man, was born as a baby, at 30 years old, began what's known as his public ministry, or the ministry in which he began performing miracles and sharing the gospel and raising up disciples. Jesus was healing people. He was meeting their needs. He was helping them understand the heart of God in the Old Testament. He was making disciples. Specifically, he chose 12, but he had many other disciples as well. And he always taught, according to God's word, bringing light to what many of the Jews did not understand. In their day and age, they certainly had an idea of what the law was, what the rules and regulations, or what the religion was, but they were lacking the relational aspect between God and man, and Jesus came to establish that relationship, to fill that void. And we see that towards the end of Jesus' life, the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high council, has become jealous. Jealous of the attention that Jesus is giving. The fact that he calls himself the Messiah, the Son of God. And so they arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we see that Jesus' followers scatter and he's left alone. And six different trials, all of which were illegal according to both Jewish and Roman tradition, all six trials that Jesus has put on are illegal and he's found not guilty. And yet trial after trial after trial, from human pressure to reputation to sins of omission, Jesus is condemned to death by crucifixion. And it's amazing because it just seems like there's so much chaos. How could the Son of God, the Savior of the world, come to earth and all of a sudden he's now being tried and being sent to a cross? A grotesque and brutal way for the Romans to murder people. The Jews, his own people whom he came to save, sending him there. No friends. No one to stand up for him. And he's nailed to a cross. It would seem that this may be the most chaotic moment in history. That the son of God who would come to rescue has somehow 
become the subject of murder. And yet what I would encourage you to understand today is that through the seven declarations, the seven statements that Jesus makes on the cross, it is anything but chaotic. But instead, Jesus reveals that he is in complete control of what is happening. And the reason why that should be of encouragement to us is because as followers of Jesus, if you are someone who confesses that Jesus Christ is your Lord, it certainly does not mean that you won't find yourself in chaotic circumstances. It certainly doesn't mean you won't find yourself in trials or with suffering, but what it does mean is that in the midst of that chaos, God is still fully in control. And here are the seven things that Jesus declares from the cross. We covered the, last, the first four last week, and we'll run through those very quickly. And then we'll look at the final three. Here's what Jesus declares first on the cross. is Jesus declares his desire to forgive sins. Jesus speaks and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What a statement. Considering he's done nothing wrong, and yet now he's nailed to a cross, and Jesus says, Father, my desire is to forgive these people, not to condemn them. Consistent with John 3, 17, in which Jesus says, I did not come into the world to condemn it. I came into the world to save, to rescue, to redeem. The second declaration that Jesus makes is that Jesus declares his mission is to bring us to God. If you know the crucifixion story, Jesus was crucified with two insurrectionists, murderers and robbers, right on either side of him, one on the right and one on the left. And they both revile or mock Jesus until they come near the point of death. And one of those murderers, one of those criminals who deserves to be on the cross, turns to Jesus and says, hey, please don't forget me. And Jesus says, not only will I not forget you, but today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus went to the cross for the very purpose of taking sinners like that man, sinners like us, and bringing us into his eternal kingdom. The third declaration Jesus makes is a declaration of provision. You'll remember that Jesus is speaking to his disciple John, the one whom he loved, who he had this close relationship with. And Jesus' own mother Mary is there near the foot of the cross. And Jesus says to his disciple John, John, behold your mother. And from that day forward, John takes Mary, Jesus' earthly mother, into his home to provide for her for the rest of her life. An incredible testimony of Jesus being our provision. And then last week, the last point that Pastor Dave covered, number four, Jesus declares the cost of our redemption. Jesus declares the cost of our redemption. It cost Jesus his life. It brought him to the point of death. It's not like he magically got to the end and everything got better. Those circumstances didn't change but what did change was the result for our lives because he gave his own. The high cost of redemption. And so this morning we're going to take a look at Matthew chapter 27. 
And we're going to see the three final declarations, which actually take place elsewhere in the Gospels, and we'll turn there. But we're going to start in verse 45, just for context. If you're at Matthew 27, 45, give me a big amen. amen. Here we go. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. This was an unnatural darkness. Uh, this was not in the evening. This was not at night. This was literally in the middle of the day. And God brings darkness over the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Translated is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there, when they heard that said, this man is calling for Elijah. If you don't know who Elijah is, he's an Old Testament prophet. Verse 48, immediately one of them ran and took a reed and offered it to him, or excuse me, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. If you remember, there were people jeering and mocking Jesus at the foot of the cross saying, hey, you saved others. Why don't you save yourself? If you're the Messiah, why don't you just come down from the cross? What a statement and what humility for Jesus to have in order to not come down from the cross. Because had he come down from the cross at that moment, everything for us would not be the way it currently is today. Instead of saving himself, he comes to save others. Verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Now, before Jesus dies on the cross, there are three other things that he says. If you would like to in your Bibles, keep your finger on Matthew 27. You can turn to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. I'll also have it on the screens here for you. John chapter 19, beginning in verse 28. This is the fifth declaration, the fifth statement that Jesus makes from the cross. And here is what he says in Matthew 19, 28. Excuse me, John 19, 28. He says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, Jesus said, I thirst. I thirst. The fifth declaration Jesus makes is a declaration of anguish and affliction. A declaration of anguish and affliction. It amazes me when we think of the practical nature of what's going on. We know that the journey, the road to the cross has been brutal for Jesus. He's been up for well over 36 hours. He's been abandoned by his followers. He's been put on six different trials before both Jewish and Gentile authorities. He's been beaten repeatedly. He's been mocked, spit on, had his beard pulled out, a crown of thorns put on his head. He was whipped with a cat of nine tails 39 times. The purpose was to get him to confess sin, and because he had no sin, he took all 39 lashes. And I can only imagine the practical nature of Jesus is thirsty. Jesus is thirsty. How many of you go for a walk at the beach and you're like, I'm thirsty when I'm done? Imagine what he had endured and the practical nature of what he is saying. I thirst. And here's what's so incredible about that statement. 
we're talking about the creator of the universe who in John chapter 1 it says nothing that was created was not created through him by him or in him the creator of the universe the one who brings rain to the earth who literally provides water for all the animals and all the human beings and the creatures of the earth the one who developed and made the properties of H2O God himself Jesus stooped so low to be with us that even he knew what it was like to be thirsty that God would leave heaven to come to earth and to experience that kind of anguish and suffering is incredible. It is a testimony of how much God loves us. Jesus was no stranger to saying no to things like sleep or food or for water. In Matthew chapter 4, many of you remember when Jesus is baptized, it says immediately following that, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And what did he do for those 40 days and 40 nights? He fasted. Jesus was no stranger to being without food and water, and yet this declaration of I thirst tells you the seriousness of what is going on for Jesus. Now this next part is not implicit in the text, but I believe that there's a deeper meaning to his comment, I thirst. For any of you Bible scholars, or for any of you who, this may sound familiar, what passage comes to mind when you hear Jesus, the Son of God, say, I thirst? Yes, the passage about Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well, John chapter 4. Jesus says to this woman, he says, if you know who had asked you for a drink, you would ask me for a drink, for I have living water that you do not know of. Isn't it incredible that the man, that the savior of the world, who was living water itself, is crying out, I'm dry, I'm parched, I'm thirsty. What was he saying? And here's what I believe he's saying. We have to remember that when the sin of the world was placed upon Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says that even though he knew no sin, he became sin for us. And because of that sin, God the Father and Jesus the Son were temporarily separated. They have always been an eternal, perfect, triune relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And for the first time in eternity, Jesus and the Father are no longer in perfect relationship because Jesus became sin for us. I remember when my daughter Grace was three years old. We were at the Carlsbad Company stores. Anybody shop there at Christmas time? We were there the week before Christmas. It was a madhouse. You know, buses coming in, all sorts of people getting off. You could barely move. And when it comes to shopping, my wife loves shopping. Me, I'm like, how can we divide and conquer? Can we send Uriah with 50 bucks as a 10-year-old to go buy something so we can get this done faster? No, you can't do that. So I was going to go to one end of the mall. She was going to go to the other end of the mall. And we were going to get things done. And with four kids, you also have to remember to take your children with you and somehow in the shuffle three-year-old Graceland was gone
I remember as a dad for seven minutes the anguish I felt. I was terrified. Everything that was bad was going on in my head. And I can't imagine. I'd only had that little girl for three years. What was it like for Jesus, who had been in perfect eternity forever with his heavenly father, to no longer be in relationship with him? I can't imagine. Anyone want to know what happened to my daughter? <laughs> Apparently, she's watching Finding Nemo with a sucker with one of the security guards, and everything was fine. <laughs> Praise Jesus. Jesus says, I thirst. In Psalm chapter 42, verse 1 through 2, here's what the psalmist says. Let's read this all together. As the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. I thirst for God, the living God. When can I go and stand before him? I imagine this was Jesus' cry with, I thirst. God, when can I be back in your presence? When can I no longer be experiencing this separation? When can I actually be in relationship with you again? This was the cry of I thirst. What an incredible testimony of the depths of God's love for his people to go through such a turmoil, such a difficult time. And may we remember this declaration of anguish and affliction, that it is our sin, our rebellion against God. When we pursue the things of the flesh instead of what the Spirit calls us to do, that's what separates us from God. And Jesus came to put an end to its power, to put an end to the suffering and anguish that we would eternally inherit if it were not for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We continue in John chapter 19 and verse 29. It talks about how somebody took some sour wine, put it on a hyssop branch and reached it up to Jesus's lips. And then in John 19 verse 30, we've got it here on your screens. Jesus makes his sixth declaration, his sixth declaration in John 19:30, It says, so when Jesus had received the sour wine, which was like a refreshing drink, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. We're going to camp out on this one for a little while. Jesus uses this term, it is finished. In English, it's three words. In the Greek in which it's written, it's one word. It's called tetelestai. Everybody say tetelestai. Remember tetelestai. If you're new to the mission church, we don't go through Greek and Hebrew very often. But in this case, this one word changes the course of eternity for humanity. Tetelestai, which means it's finished, it's accomplished, it's complete, it's paid in full. Tetelestai would often be written on a receipt in ancient times to say, hey, the debt has been paid. Nothing else is owed. And when Jesus says, Tetelestai, this is not a cry of a victim from a cross. This is a cry of a victor who has accomplished God's mission for our salvation. Jesus declares God's eternal plan to purchase our salvation is now complete. 
Jesus declares God's eternal plan to purchase salvation is now complete. The whole purpose of why Jesus came to earth was to save us, to rescue us, to redeem us, to ransom us from our sin. And when Jesus cries out to Telestai, he's saying his mission, it is finished. What exactly was finished? Well, if we go back to Genesis chapter 3, how many of you know the story of Adam and Eve pretty well? Adam and Eve created perfect and perfect relationship with God and with one another, and God gives them one command. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for if you do, and on that day, you will surely die. And what do Adam and Eve do? They eat the fruit, and death enters into the world because they have sinned. And as Jesus is speaking the consequences to both Adam, to Eve, and then to the serpent, who was the devil, Satan himself, he says to the serpent, one day from the seed of this woman Eve, meaning someone from her ancestry, one will come to crush your head, to put an end to your power, to take away the sting of death in which sin brings and you have power over. So that when Jesus cries out on the cross to Telestai, he talks about Genesis 3. It is finished. That one has come and he is victorious over Satan's sin and death. In Genesis 22, many of you know the story of Abraham and Isaac. When Isaac was a younger boy, probably in his teenage years, God says, Abraham, who do you love more? Me? Or the son that I promised you that you waited nearly 25 years for. Remember, Abraham didn't have Isaac till he was 100. And up the mountain, Abraham and Isaac go. And Abraham is willing to give the life of his own son in faith when God stays his hand, speaks through his angel and says, don't kill the boy, I've created a substitute for you. And in that moment in time, there's a ram to take Isaac's place, and yet we know this story is looking ahead to the coming Messiah, to one who would be the substitute for our sins, to the one whose blood would be shed so that we could be freed from the power of sin and death, so that when Jesus Jesus says to Telestai, he says, it is finished. The promised son, the only son has come to take your place. Within that very chapter, Genesis 22, God promises Abraham. He says, Abraham, one is coming from your descendants who will bless all the families of the earth. To Telestai, Jesus is the one who blesses all the families of the earth by inviting them into salvation through his death on the cross and his resurrection. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, we just covered this in men's ministry, the Davidic covenant. King David wants to build God a house or a temple, and God says, hey, you're not the one to do it. That's going to be your son Solomon, but I'll tell you what, David. I'm so moved by your heart. I'm so moved by your desire to not just sit in your palace and enjoy the high life, but instead to serve me that I'm going to build you a house, and that house is going to be eternal, which means that someone from your ancestry line will sit on the throne of you, David, forever and ever. So that when Jesus says, Tetelestai, it is finished, he is the king of kings, the one to sit on the throne forever. 
in Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. These passages about the coming Messiah who would suffer on our behalf, bear our transgressions, pay for our iniquities. When Jesus says, it is finished to Telestai, it's because the Savior of the world has come. And if we were to apply this to our own life, to the things that we suffer from, that we worry about, and many things are warranted, financial troubles, relational turmoil, physical ailments or cancer or pain, what word should remind us of who is in control despite the circumstances? It's tetelestai. It is finished. Our circumstances may not be changed, but the end has already been written. And what we need most, Christ has already done. So how did this actually take place? How was our salvation purchased by Jesus? And here's the answer. God's wrath on sin has been satisfied. God's wrath on sin has been satisfied. This may be simplifying it way too much, but how many of you remember those little, like, electric pony rides or carousels that used to be outside of Thrifty or Rite Aid? You guys remember those? Some of you are too young. You're like, what? They were ridiculous, right? You pop a quarter in, it'd shake you for like 10 seconds and give you whiplash, and then it'd be done. And that was back in the day before everybody sued everybody for everything, right? They've since taken all those out, and we have to wear masks, right? Gone downhill fast. Bring back the pony rides. But here's the reality. In order to make that little silly pony go, or for the carousel to go round with the little circus music, what did you have to do in order to receive the joy of watching your kid participate? You had to put in the quarter. And then later on it became like six quarters and you stopped participating. Something had to be paid in order for us to receive the joy of that silly little ride outside of Thrifty. When it says that God's wrath was satisfied, it means there needed to be a full payment before we could be considered justified or made right in God's eyes for the very purpose of being rescued and saved. Don't worry, little one. Jesus has come to tell us die. I want to encourage us. God's word tells us that Jesus did just that. It's amazing that the sin of the world, whatever that looked like, and I can only look at my own life, I can't imagine that Jesus could bear only my sin, let alone billions of people. The sin of the world was placed upon him. He became sin for us. And because he became sin for us, what had to come against that sin? It was God's wrath because God is a just God and in his justice he will not allow sin to go unpunished. There had to be a propitiation. There had to be a sacrifice. There had to be somewhere to lay the punishment and Jesus takes that upon himself. This is what it means when we say that God's wrath on sin has been satisfied. On your screens, we've got a passage from Romans. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. Let's read this together one loud voice. 
God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Let's pause right there for just a moment. Can you go back to that screen? Thank you. We shall be saved from wrath through him. That wrath is not against God's creation because God hates his creation. That wrath is against sin, which ruins and wrecks God's creation. And because God is just, because he is uh, a loving God, he must punish sin. And instead of us enduring God's wrath, to tell us die, Jesus takes it. And it's through him that we're saved. Let's look at the rest of the verse. Read with me. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Which means Jesus' death on the cross, which happened, by the way, when we were what to God? We were enemies, still sinners. We were still giving him the middle finger. We were still running the other direction. And Christ came and died for us. And that death takes the wrath of God from us to him. And it's in his life, his resurrection. How much more do we have life through Jesus Christ? So that when it says to die, it is finished. It's because the wrath of God, our just and loving God, was satisfied upon his own son. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 56 and 57 says, For sin is the sting that results in death. And the law gives sin its power. Meaning when we know what to do, right and wrong, which comes from the Ten Commandments, we know that we're condemned because all of us break the commandments. We're guilty. Verse 57, But thank God he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. As I was studying this week, it was Thursday, which is like the heavy study day. I was in the head knowledge. I was in the theology, just breaking down everything that's taking place on the cross. Amazing, rich study. And I, I get a phone call. And it's one of our young adults. And he goes, JC, my dad just died. I just wanted to let you know. And all that head knowledge... All that theology, which is true, went from here to here really quick. Because the very thing that I had the privilege of studying isn't just for knowledge's sake. It's because it matters. It's a life or death situation. And this particular young man who's a part of our group, his dad's been a follower of Jesus Christ for a long time. And it doesn't change the circumstance. He's still gone. He still died. His family is going to be in sorrow and anguish missing him. There's nothing I could say to take that away. And, not but, and to tell us die. I got to tell him, it's finished. Your dad is in the full presence of Jesus Christ. There's complete assurance that you will see him again because the wrath of God was satisfied on Jesus and not your dad. For us as Christians, 
it's so easy, myself included, to get caught up in the religious aspects of our faith, to know and understand the head knowledge here, but to miss the very purpose of death is a reality of our world. It will come for each of us unless Jesus returns before then. And the comfort that we receive in knowing that our loved ones or even ourselves will face death is Jesus' sixth declaration to Telestai, it is finished. When Jesus declared these words, he also declared that victory is won. Our debt for sin has been paid in full. And I want to encourage you this morning, if you're here and you're still holding on to sin from your past, listen, I know, I know how we beat ourselves up. I won't ask you to raise your hands on this question, but how many of you are harder on yourself than anyone on the planet? Probably most of us. Or there's things in our past that we just won't let go because they were too awful and I deserve to be punished for them. And I want to encourage you to tell us, die. God isn't looking for additional punishment because that would nullify the work that he's already done through his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. It's time to let the sin of your past go through the repentance found in Jesus Christ so that when you ask for forgiveness of your sins, that's why he came. You know that it is finished and now he keeps no record of wrongs and tells you, walk with me. Turn from your sin and follow me. If you've been trying to be a good person, maybe you're even here today just because you think you can earn holy points with God or because you're so messed up that you had to just get into a church building, may I encourage you to tell us die. You don't have to earn it. You can't deserve it. It's not by a life of merit. It has been paid in full by one who is Jesus Christ the Lord. Let us be reminded that God has completed the purchase for our salvation. Victory is won. Our debt is paid in full. Imagine this. You get a text message walking out of church that says, hey, your car has been paid in full. How many of you are rejoicing? (laughs) You get a letter in the mail that says your mortgage has been paid in full. How excited are you? to speak of things maybe perhaps more serious imagine those who are on death row having a judge come to their cell and say someone has paid and given their life for you you're free to go to tell us die this is what Christ has done and here's what I love all of this happens through death the death of Jesus What is the thing that the world fears most? It's death above everything else. I think public speaking's there somewhere. I'm sure spiders is on the list somewhere else. Um, But death is what literally, statistically speaking, people fear the most. And yet it's through the death of Christ that we get to experience new life. So that for the follower of Jesus, death no longer becomes something to be feared but simply something to speak, to tell us die, it is finished. 
it's over. My debt is paid in full. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The final declaration that Jesus makes. You still with me this morning? Turn to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. Jesus has cried out, I thirst to telestai. I, it is finished. And then the final thing that he says, the last declaration of Jesus on the cross. Let's look at it together. Luke chapter 23, verse 46. Still hear the pages of your Bibles turning, which is a great and wonderful sound. Luke 23, 46 says, And when Jesus had cried out, that would have been the tetelestai, with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Oh, do not miss this church. When Jesus had the sin of the world upon his shoulders, he cries out, he declares, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which translated is what? What did Jesus call his heavenly father? My God. It's the only time in all of scripture that Jesus refers to his heavenly father as my God because there was a separation because of sin. Because he had the weight of the world's sin upon his shoulders. He had become sin for us. And now in the last declaration that Jesus makes from the cross, what's the first word he uses? Which tells us what has taken place reconciliation the relationship is back together because the wrath of God has been satisfied amazing I always thought that simply at the death of Jesus everything was taken care of and there's some truth to that and it wouldn't be a wrong statement but on the cross while he still had breath in his lungs Jesus paid the fullness for our sins and was completely restored to his heavenly father. This seventh declaration is a declaration of serenity. Jesus is at peace with his heavenly father. I think it's important to note that this peace had nothing to do with the circumstances that were facing Jesus. It would be a whole different story if it said Jesus had peace and miraculously he, he just came off the cross and was fine. Because the reality is in my own life when I'm going through something, really what do I want God to do in my life? Just make it better. Make it not hurt. Make it not be so painful. Make it not cost me so much. Can you just change the circumstance? And hey, that's our human nature. That's our default position. And yet praise Jesus that the peace he experiences with his father has nothing to do with the fact that he's still bleeding out and nailed to a cross. What comfort that should give to us, but not only to us, Think about how the gospel transcends worldly economics. 
The gospel is not just for first world countries with people who in general live in houses or apartments or who have bank accounts or who can work and provide for themselves and their family. The gospel transcends to the lowest parts of humanity in which people have nothing. They're persecuted because of the way that they look or because of the religion that they have. And the gospel comes in and says, hey, just because your circumstances are full of sorrow and pain, it doesn't mean you can't have peace eternally with your creator. This is the power of the gospel that goes across the entire globe and isn't relegated to just middle-class America. Have you ever experienced a day where your head hits the pillow at night and it just feels like you have no worries? Some of you are like, nope. <laughs> have you felt that? Or have you ever had a day where it was, just, it was just one of those where you're like, that was, wow, like God, what else could I ask for? Do you know that God desires to give us that kind of peace even in the midst of whatever it is that we're going through? That's what he came to do. So that, like Jesus, while he's on the cross, listen, we have to get it out of our heads that this is all hell breaking loose and chaos taking place. This is all part of God's sovereign plan in which he is in complete control. And what I love about this is in all the anguish and suffering that Jesus really is experiencing physically, emotionally, spiritually, and mentally, he is still being a testimony to those who are around him. And you bet there are people watching. His life is still ministering to others in some ways more powerfully than he ever has because of the circumstances that he faces. I don't know about you, but for me, when I'm in pain, I would just like to get out of it quickly. And yet, according to the gospel, according to the story of Jesus Christ on the cross, it's in those moments where people better understand Jesus than at any time. How might that shape our prayer life? How might that change our perspective about the circumstances that we face? How might we grow in the depths of our faith, asking God to move in mighty ways when things aren't going the exact way that we would like? One of the things that I love that shows us that Jesus was in full control is in John 10, 17 and 18. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. Jesus says this, therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. Meaning who takes Jesus's life away? Nobody. Nobody. It's not the Romans. It's not the Jews. It's not Satan. It's not even our sin. Jesus lays his life down willingly. He gives it freely. It's under his control. Verse 18 says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it up again. This command I have received from my father. What I love that we see in this tetelestai, in this serenity, is that Jesus has come to do his father's will and now his father's will is accomplished. And what does accomplishing the father's will result in? Peace. Not the circumstances, 
but the accomplishing of God's will. We say this often here at the Mission Church. How do you know God's will? Through God's word. If you know God's word, you can know God's will for your life. And for Jesus, he followed his father's will. And even while he hung on the cross, he had complete serenity and peace because his mission was accomplished. Turn back with me to Matthew chapter 27. After this final declaration, this declaration in which Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Verse 51 tells us, Then, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Anybody have questions about those two verses? So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him were there looking on from afar, among who were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons, James and John. Can unpack these things kind of one at a time. When it says that there were many women who had ministered to Jesus, there was literally a group of women who pulled their financial resources together in order to support Jesus' ministry so he could go full-time sharing the good news, healing, and ministering to many in Judea. Matthew's gospel also tells us that apparently after Jesus dies on the cross, when he gives up his life, that there is a tremendous earthquake and graves are opened and the bodies of the saints, those who have faith in God, get up out of the graves, go into the holy city of Jerusalem and appear to people. How many of you want to know more about that? <laughs> Me too. And Matthew gives us nothing else besides those two verses. He literally drops a bomb and is like, have fun, future. <laughs> None of the other Gospels talk about. We don't know exactly what Matthew is referring to. But here is certainly what we do know according to the text. It says that this happened after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. After the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this took place at least three days after. Here's what I believe was happening. That this would have been a resurrection just like the one that Jesus did with Lazarus. Where literally people got up from their graves and lived again until they died. I don't believe this is the resurrection where you receive your glorified body and you live forever. There's no indication of that. But here's what it does tell us. And Matthew is making the point that the grave no longer had any power and that Jesus had conquered even death itself. And how amazing. I mean, what if you saw a relative that you hadn't seen in 25 years show up at your door and come preaching in Jesus' name. I would like to think that people were like, okay, maybe he is the Messiah. 
but that's all we get in Matthew. So it also talks about how the rocks were split and there was a giant earthquake. Uh, this earthquake is recorded in multiple places uh, elsewhere in secular history, which is really neat. This isn't just some Bible story made up. It's actually recorded. And it takes us back to when Jesus is entering Jerusalem for the final time in his ministry. And people are shouting, Hosanna in the highest, praise to the Messiah. They're waving palm branches, putting their coats on the road. And the religious leaders of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high council, come to Jesus and they say, Teacher, tell your followers to stop calling you the Messiah, the Savior. This is blasphemy. And what's Jesus' response? Do you remember? If they were to close their mouths, then even the rocks themselves would cry out. And at the death of Christ, when he commends his spirit, breathes his last, and bows his head, the earth itself trembles. And isn't it amazing that even though it doesn't have a heartbeat, that God's own creation responds to his death and yet also to his victory at the same time, proclaiming, that death itself has been shaken. The foundations have been shaken to the core. Matthew also records in verse 51 that the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now this is an important point and we're going to spend a little bit of time on this. Uh, if you don't know anything about uh, the temple for the Jews or temple history, here's just a really brief Synopsis: um, The Jews had a temple where they would go to worship God. And within that temple, there were various rooms or divisions to create rooms. And the most precious room was called the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place. And for those of you who know, what was inside the Most Holy Place? It's the Ark of the Covenant. Um, how many of you have seen Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark? <laughs> That's, what you, that's it, right? That's the Ark of the Covenant, uh, just without Harrison Ford. On the Ark of the Covenant were these wings of these two angels known as cherubim, and it was called the mercy seat. And it's literally where the presence of God would reside with the Jewish people. And yet that presence only was in the Holy of Holies. And no one could go into the Holy of Holies except one time a year, the high priest for all of Israel. And he would go in to make an atonement, a sacrifice for sin, and then he would go out and no one would go back in for a whole year. And there was a whole ritual process in order for that high priest to be able to go in and come out alive. And here's what this veil being torn is about. The veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was four inches thick. And it represented that not all people could just go into the presence of God. And when the veil was torn in two from top to bottom, meaning heaven ripped it from up above all the way to its bottom, when that veil was torn in two, it's because access to God is now available to all. Access to God is now available to all. Now, think of the significance of what's happening. Literally, anybody can now come to saving grace through Jesus Christ and be reconciled to their Heavenly Father. Any man, any woman, regardless of what race you are or ethnicity or nationality, regardless of your education status, 
regardless of what you do for a living, how much money you have and what you look like. Anybody could come because access was granted to all. Here's why that matters to us now. We literally live in a society that is attempting to do this and they're royally messing it up. Every policy, every law, every mandate, all these movements are attempting to bring equality to a broken world and they're failing miserably. And yet it still remains the desire of the world for all people to be able to have dignity and respect. The problem is the world wants to do it without Jesus and the only solution to it actually happening is Jesus. It's why the brokenness gets messier and messier. It's why the answer here at the Mission Church is not being political. Don't get your wheels so spun up that all you do is talk about the articles you read and what's on Fox News and what's going on with Governor Newsom because that's not the gospel and the power to save. What we need is Jesus Christ because what everyone wants out there and in here is tetelestide. That's not even a word. Don't quote me on that. It's the tetelestide that Jesus brings through his death on the cross. It's why still at the forefront of our hearts and minds as we minister to people in this culture of politics must be the gospel. For it is the power of God to save for everyone, both Jews first and also everyone who's non-Jewish or for the Greeks. The second thing that the veil torn in two represents is salvation through Jesus alone. There is no other name by which we can be saved. Plain and simple. I think probably most of us know this in our brains, but do we actually live this out? What might we be clinging on to for salvation in our lives? What is causing us so much worry and angst that it feels like if I just got that, then I'd be okay? There is nothing except for Jesus Christ. The veil was torn in two, and salvation is through Jesus alone. It also teaches us that Jesus is our high priest. Remember, only once a year to atone for sin could the high priest go into the Holy of Holies. And now, when can we talk to God? Anytime we want to, from anywhere we want to. It's hard to fathom that. It's hard to fathom that the creator of the universe is literally available to us in a split second when we simply go before him and go, I love, Connor does this, hey God, it's me. And he's listening, we have access, he's our high priest interceding on our behalf, which means even as Christian people, when we sin, because we will continue to do so, when we sin, who's pleading our case? Jesus is our high priest because he's made the atonement. He satisfied the wrath of God. So that in our relationship with our heavenly father, because the veil has been torn, we have an advocate in Jesus Christ who stands in our place, giving us right standing with God. And then last but not least, the temple veil torn in two declares the fulfillment of Old Testament ceremonies and sacrifice. There is no longer animal sacrifice because the once and for all sacrifice has come. We as a church, we remember Passover, but we don't celebrate Passover. 
And that's not because it would be wrong to celebrate Passover, but because Passover has been fulfilled. It was to remember what God had done in Egypt to deliver his people from the oppressive hand of Pharaoh. And under Moses, the people were given instruction, sacrifice and slaughter a lamb and put its blood above the doorpost. And those who have the blood of the lamb over their doorpost will be saved. All of that is pointing us to Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment. He is the Passover lamb. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or what the prophets have said. I did not come to destroy them. I came to fulfill them. The temple veil being torn in two shows that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. And then perhaps one of the most amazing parts of the story is what Matthew records about those Roman guards who stood at the foot of the cross watching all of this unfold. Imagine how many times they had nailed people to those trees, heard their cries, listened to them begging for mercy, watched them bleed out, the gruesomeness. I mean, I can only imagine what those guards had to go through. But notice what the result of Jesus' work on the cross is. And we cannot miss this. It cannot stay stagnant in our heads or as a theological understanding that, yes, I know Jesus died for my sin. The result of Jesus dying for our sin is literally this in Matthew chapter 27, verse 54. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this. This was the Son of God. Jesus wasn't just another man being crucified like they'd probably seen hundreds if not thousands of times. They literally witnessed, felt, heard, experienced this one. He really is God's Son. Because this is the power of the cross. To take pagans and sinners like me and like you and like this Roman centurion soldier. And to reveal to them that God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, was the son of God. Jesus' work on the cross was so complete, even sinners can see his divinity. Church family, this is the purpose of the work of the cross. This is the reason why Jesus died on our behalf. So that in us, people can see us dying to ourselves. Us becoming less and less. God becoming greater and greater. His life being magnified. My life being put low. So that sinners, people who do not yet follow Jesus can go, Man, I can see Jesus in your life. He truly is the Son of God. That's what we're called to. It's what Jesus tells us to do. To die to ourselves daily and to pick up our own cross. Not the same one that he died on. That was the Tetelestai cross. He finished it for us. But we are called to walk in his ways, to die to ourselves, and to follow him. Church family, I want to encourage you. In your own life, no matter what you're experiencing today, what circumstances you face, to tell us die. And in that truth that it is finished, 
Who is God going to reveal himself to through the work of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection in your own life? Make that something you think about and pray about this week. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.